All right, welcome into episode 48 of the Natural Hat Trick Podcast alongside the always splendid Jamie Eisner and the especially happy Craig Morgan. I'm Luke Lipinski. Only one of those two things is true. Let's see, but we're not going to tell you which one. You're going to have to guess. How are you guys doing today? Not bad. Craig I has got my coffee. I'm loaded up. So does your car. Your car has coffee all over it now, too? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, before we get going here, I know a number of you continue to tweet. By the way, can you hear me? Can all listeners hear me now? I'm speaking right into the mic. Here's what happened last week. My wife, my, my mic, not my wife. My mic. Freudian slip. My mic blew up last week. Nine minutes into the show. Didn't really blow yes. up. The battery died, and none of us knew it. Well, so. it didn't sound good, so we all kind of suspected something was up, but so we didn't know until we were done. What you were all hearing was me in Luke's mic. Basically, so yeah. That's why. That's I, how powerful my mic is. I wasn't speaking softly. No. Craig is a, he's a very loud And man. if Dave Vest is listening, I wasn't speaking like Michael Jackson either. <laughs> and if anybody else is still listening, that's our new show open. Okay, so as is the uh, trend. First of all, episode 48, the Jordan Martinuk episode. Let's just get that out there right now. Uh, there's rumors. I'm not going to confirm anything that we may do two episodes next week. It's possible to right. celebrate the 50th Eklund episode. has that as an E4. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Um, but Are today, Eklund references still popular? Is that a thing anymore? Or um, is that like hockey Twitter circa three, well, four years as, ago? As Craig always says, we set the tone for NHL news on this show, so now they're popular. We're going to make Eklund great again? <sighs> oh, look, now trending. Wow, well, look Sorry. at that. Even though people can't hear this yet because we're recording it. <laughs> How amazing. Uh, so, okay, we're going to do three more previews today. We've got, uh, we've got a couple guests on the show. We have... Adam Vingan on of the Tennessean to talk Nashville Predators. That, that is quietly a very good hockey team. We'll get into that with him. Uh, we have Isabel Kershudian of the Washington Post on to talk about the Washington Capitals. That's not quietly a good hockey team. That's potentially a great hockey team. And we'll talk about the Edmonton Oilers. So are a hockey team. <laughs> <laughs> so a quietly good hockey team, a potentially great hockey team, and a hockey team on the show today. We're going to start, though, because... We do this show usually on Wednesdays, and then news breaks on Thursday. It happened again last week. Lawson Kraus goes to the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, I went back and listened to our Panthers preview with Harvey Fielkov from a couple weeks ago. And we asked him about Lawson Kraus because he was their top prospect. He had a lot of great things to say about him, and now he's a Coyote. Now he's one of their top left-wing prospects. Um, and this is, this is what the Coyotes have been doing this offseason. It's not the only time they've done it, obviously. They took on Pavel Datsuk's contract as well, the $7.5 million cap hit. No salary, of course, so that they could get Jacob Chikrin in the draft. They do it again. They, they take on Dave Boland's $5.5 million cap hit for the next three seasons so they can land Lawson Kraus. A lot of discussion about the Coyotes' tactics. Is this a loophole? Is this a loophole that should be closed? Well, I caught up with NHL Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly and he pretty much just said no. <laughs> they don't have an issue with <laughs> Sounds it. Sounds like something he would say. Yeah, he, he's actually a, a terrific email interview. He, he's very good in email. <laughs> he always responds. But, you know, I, I know a lot of people probably have a problem with this because when you look at the Coyote situation, you're talking about 18, just about $18 million in cap hit. If they didn't have that on the books right now, they wouldn't even be at the salary cap floor. Now they, they have some more maneuvering to do. They may sign Tobias Reeder, and that might put them over anyway. So maybe some people feel this is not in the spirit of what this rule is all about. Here's what Bill Daly had to say to me, direct quote. I would say that it's a matter that we monitor like all other areas of the CBA, and if we believe it starts to be abused in a way that is inconsistent with how the system is designed to work, at that point, 
we would try to correct it in collective bargaining with the union. I would say we aren't at that point on this issue. We do not view it as a loophole that some describe it as. And when I asked him about, you know, okay, you know, there, there's this, this belief, Dave, Bill Daly said it's not even fair to lump Dave Bolin in because Dave Bolin still wants to play, but I said, okay, what, what happens if Dave Bolin, in fact, is done playing in the NHL? And he said, I don't think that changes my answer. Okay. That's... See, I, my, my initial reaction, and obviously we're going to get more into this, and, and we'll talk about the impact of Krause on the Coyotes too, but we'll start with this because I think this is a more kind of unique situation. And you wrote something for uh, for today's Slapshot on this too. So this people is in my Sunday it. column, Craigslist, Sunday, yes. Okay. If you're – Not Craigslist.com. No. Don't go to that. No, I mean, don't you can go there, there, but you're going to find different columns there. I would have a problem if – Roman a, columns. If a team was uh, – if Craig Morgan writes misconnections. Oh, boy. I don't remember what I was going to say, but it was brilliant. I would have more of a problem with this if a team was was trying to circumnavigate the rules to the point where they were just getting to the cap floor. Now, I understand what you just said. The Coyotes wouldn't technically be there at this point. I have no doubt the Coyotes would go out and spend that money on somebody else. They've been very aggressive this summer. You can make a case they've been the most active team this summer. Um, not Not any huge moves, but a lot of potentially important moves. So I would have more of an issue if there was a team out there that was just taking on salaries of players that weren't playing just so they could be cheap and just get to the cap floor. The Coyote, where I don't have an issue, is seeing that Detroit has to move Datsuk, so we're going to use that to move up and get Jacob Chikrin because we want him. Florida has to move Bolin, so we're going to take their top prospect. To me, that is a hockey team in the Coyotes that is, is using the rule to make their team better. And as long as you're trying to make your team better, I don't care. That's the big point because in both of those trades, both teams were better than they were before yeah. because of them. The only argument against what the Coyotes are doing is honestly not an argument from the league perspective. It would be an argument from the players' perspective, Absolutely. saying you are you are chewing up a cat pit that we are we make sure we set a minimum because we want our player pool to make X amount of dollars in a given season. Now you're going to chew that up with players like Pavel Datsuk and Chris Pronger who are going to make $0 and are going to get you to the cap floor or above the cap floor or whatever it is, you're chewing up that money. That would be the only argument. That would come from the players' union. I have, I do not understand whatsoever why the league itself would be upset by no, that. And I really haven't heard that argument yet from the players' no, union. You look, I, I, think, I, I hear what Jamie's saying, but you can also look at it this way. Look, those guys got moved to a different team, so now you, know, you, you have a, a team in Florida and a team in Detroit that have the flexibility to go out and sign someone else. So it's going to benefit another player because of that. So it's just, it's sort of a shell game. You're moving it from one place to, to the other. I do agree that as long as the team is trying to improve itself, it's just not trying to get to the cap yeah. floor or trying to tie up some space. You're good there. And, and from the Coyotes' perspective, not only do you get these two top prospects to just add to a, an ever-growing stable of really promising it's unreal talent. unreal at this point. It you're really only for, for when you when you throw in Datsuk, Boland, and Chris Pronger, assuming Dave Boland heads to long-term injured reserve, which I've been told he's going to, you're only paying $1.675 million yeah. next season for those three contracts on your books. So to pay that amount to acquire these two prospects, yeah, sign me up. It's, Absolutely. It's creative and smart at this point. If they want to collectively bargain it to, to be against the rules in three or four years or whatever, well, then you can't do it anymore. But right now... I don't even know if I would call it a loophole. It's just the way the rules are set up. And so when you are a team that's not based in Toronto or New York, this is a creative and intelligent way to get players like this and go out and add prospects. Yes, the Coyotes have a ton of prospects. They probably don't need these prospects as much as other teams. 
But that's on the other teams for not being creative enough. It's a smart allocation of resources. Absolutely. Once you hit, even in theory, once you hit the cap floor, you can spend any amount from that point to the cap ceiling. So what's the difference between spending that amount to sign a third-line player or spending that amount to get another player and a prospect to your team that could help you down the line with another team that can go use that money to sign a third-line player? And, and obviously there's not unlimited cap space, so it's not like the Coyotes can go out and add 30 prospects by doing this. They've added the ones they, they can. and well. It seems shadier in explanation than it is in practice. But in in practice, if you had to explain this to somebody who didn't know, it kind of yeah. feels like, well, that's, there's a lot going on here. But in reality... Both teams got better it, in these deals. That's why. I feel like when, when there's a trade where both teams get better, the other 28 teams don't like it as much because all of a sudden two teams just made up ground on them. Yeah, and the other way to view this, I, I think a lot of Coyotes fans, casual Coyote fans, looked at this and said, well, wait, this is going to tie up their future. Well, first of all, two of these guys come off the books. That's okay, and Pronger come off the books next year. So you're only talking about Dave Boland's contract. Secondly, the Coyotes have a lot of young cost control players on their roster they're not going to be a cap team for the coming years anyway. Maybe you say, well, this, this prevents them from becoming one. They have too many young players that they wouldn't have enough roster spots to sign players to get to the cap anyway. So the salary cap, to be honest, is a non-issue for this team for the next few years. So this made perfect sense from that standpoint as well. Yeah, they've lined themselves up really well, not even just for, you know, for this year and the next year with the expansion draft. We've talked about this with the Coyotes. Like They don't even really have that many players they would have to protect, and let alone need to protect. I mean, all the guys that they, they're going to want to keep from, from Las Vegas potentially are either first or second year guys that they don't even have to use protection on, or they've worked their, they've staggered their roster uh, really well going forward. And I get closer on Lawson Krause. They don't really have a prospect like him. I mean, who's the closest? Would it be Christian Fisher? He's about the only one I can kind of think of. This is a team. Yeah, that, with that kind of big body power yeah. forward. Yeah, it's. I mean, Brendan Perlini is a, a big kid, but he's he, he's a different style of game. He's not it's, a tank. Kraus no. is a tank. Perlini, it's about his hands, really. He's just he's a finisher. So, yeah, and and John Chaika said that in the in the press conference after or the conference call after they acquired Kraus, he said when we identified you know some holes in our organization, this is one area we felt we needed to shore up, and so they go out and get a player like Austin Kraus again. It, just, it creates more competition in their system, too. Absolutely. And I, I'm blanking. I couldn't find it here. The GM that said it, I believe it was an NHL GM, talked about what's the best way to hit on your draft picks, to have more draft picks. Yeah, flood them. What's the best way to hit on your, in, on your prospects? Have a ton of them. And the Coyotes have given themselves a lot of lottery tickets. I heard. They're, they're not all going to make the team. Even if They're not all no. going to pan out. That's not how this works. But they've got enough pieces that only if a, f- if a few of them do, if a handful do, they're set. Yeah, I don't know what the exact percentage would be of, of first round. I mean, Kraus is at the number 11 pick two drafts ago, so one season ago. I mean, now they have three players from the first round of that draft. It's And they expect all three of them to eventually play. I mean, Merkley, once he gets healthy, he's kind of fallen into the, the background of this prospect pool because they keep adding more prospects, and he really hasn't been playing as much. They're really high on him. Kraus, the 11 pick, and then obviously Dylan Strom, the third pick. It's, they've, they've set themselves up very well. They were already set up very well coming into this summer. And the fact that they've been able to revamp the blue line at the NHL level, maybe they still want to do a little more, but either way, and they've revamped the blue line completely at the minor league or the, mm. the, the you know, lower level. Anthony D'Angelo too, right? Yeah. yeah. And then they've just added more forward prospects too. Whatever the percentage is that hits, the more you have, the higher that number is going to go. I remember hearing Florida's assistant GM the day, uh, the afternoon of that trade, he did not sound like a guy that wanted to give up Lawson Krause. And, and anytime there's a deal that involves the Coyotes, 
a lot of my friends that work in sports here that just kind of casually follow the Coyotes, you know, because they're in town or because they know me. And so they'll just ask about it. They've kind of followed them more. Their, their initial reaction from a few of them was, well, why is Florida sour on this guy if he was the number 11 pick a year ago? Florida wasn't sour on him. No. It was the only way they could get rid of that contract. Yeah, they, they felt very strongly about Lawson Kraus. It's just they felt even more strongly about getting rid of Dave Boland's contract. They're in a, obviously, when you look at their moves, they're in a go-for-it-now mode. Yeah. So this gives them a whole lot of flexibility now to make more moves, and, and that was more important to them than, than hanging on. And that's, that's, that's just the price you pay. Well, and they have other you know, young forwards that are already NHL ready, already mm -hmm. playing in the NHL that they're going to have to pay next year. And so at a certain point, you have to start freeing up money or down the line, you're going to have to start paying Jonathan Huberto next year. He's an RFA. And so as much as you may love Lawson Krause, if you're the Panthers, Huberto's already playing. He's already a part of your team that just won the division last year and hopes to win it again th uh, this upcoming season. You need to start putting money aside for him and it, it made sense for both teams. There's not a lot of deals that do that, but we've seen it now twice with the Coyotes this summer, the Red Wings deal as well. That really helped Detroit, but it really helped the Coyotes too, and it didn't hurt them at all. Absolutely. Again, if you're going to use asset management, if the Coyotes aren't going to use that cap hit for players that are going to play for them now, use it in a trade to try to get players that will help them in the future. Use all the resources at your disposal. Side note to this story uh, is Dave Boland's future. Now, Obviously, the Coyotes expect him to go on long-term injured reserve. I, I doubt he plays this season, but there's always the possibility that Dave Boland comes to camp next season or the season after that since he's under contract for three years and says, hey, I'm ready to go. At that point, you're facing a dilemma because you've, <laughs> you've got to suddenly pay him. Um, but here's what Dave Boland's up against, and I, I alluded to this in the Sunday column. I'll flush this out a little bit more when I write about it again. But I spoke to his agent, Anton Thun, over the weekend, a lot of people know about the severed ankle tendon that he suffered uh, back in the, at the end of 2013. I know it just sounds ugly when you start talking about it when he was with Toronto still. Yeah. Well, he suffered a back injury last year in Florida, and as his agent told me, the two issues are interconnected. What, what's going on with him right now is he can't even – the, the ankle injury requires day-to-day -day care. He can't even do that rehab right now because he's got a – a vertebrae that's damaged in his back. It's pinching a nerve. It's literally not sending electrical signals to his ankle to get it firing. So until he finishes rehabbing his back, he can't rehab his ankle. So it's just a mess right now. You know, his agent said there's nothing David Boland wants to do more than play in the NHL. He'd like to return to the game. Is that going to happen? He said, I don't think anybody can project that at this point. Yeah. There's no timeline on his return. You feel bad for the guy. I mean, it is, like you just said, you, you just outlined basically two different rehabs. He's got to get through one to get to the second one. And he's had a pretty good career up uh, to this yeah. point, too. I mean, I know that, that Florida was looking at that contract because he's hurt, and they have $5.5 a year. That's a terrible contract for that team. But that doesn't diminish what he did in his career up to that point. Yeah, winning two Stanley Cups in Chicago, scoring the cup-winning goal against Boston in Game 6. At TD Garden, it was a pretty good run for him. For a while, he was, I, you know, in that 2010 NHL playoffs, I thought you could make a strong argument for that guy as Conn Smythe Trophy. When you looked at the job he did shutting down opposing centers, he was incredible yeah, in that playoff. A, a fun podcast topic if we were doing this six <laughs> years ago. How great would that have been? Uh, Lawson Krause, when we talked to Harvey uh, from the Sun Sentinel a couple weeks ago, he said that, and this is with Florida's, loaded top six of, of young players that have already established themselves in the NHL. He said he expected Kraus to either sneak in on the third line or play on the fourth line this year. He did expect him to play just one year after being drafted. 
where do we see him fitting in for the Coyotes potentially this year? Could he find a roster spot? Well, I, I know a lot of people are speculating about Tobias Reeder's future and, and wondering if the two are interrelated. They could be, and, and as John Chica will tell you, any, you know, everybody comes to camp, and if you prove yourself, you'll have a chance. The Coyotes have some left wings under contract right now. They have Max Domi, they have Jordan Martinuk, and they obviously signed McGinn as well. So you've got three spots locked up right there. Maybe there's a fourth spot. But I still suspect they'll re-sign Tobias Reeder. I know there's been a lot of trade talk out there, but the, the Coyotes aren't trading Tobias Reeder. That's not happening. So you've got him in the mix. And you've also got Brendan Perlini, who we just talked about, as one of their top prospects, a, a first-round draft pick himself. So there's a lot of competition at that position. I think it would be pretty difficult for Kraus to make the team this year. Also, there's that conditional draft pick hanging out there that if he doesn't make the team, that becomes a fourth rounder. Yeah. What, the 2018 or 2017 pick becomes a fourth rounder, not a third rounder. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons there. And, again, you I think it's a third – isn't it a third-rounder, not a second-rounder? No, I think it's third, fourth, not third, because there's yeah. two-thirds at the moment, I believe. You can double-check on that. But, I mean – Did it, you just point at me and say you can double-check on I that? I did. Because you're the one not works. talking right now. Are but you? I'm thinking of what I'm going to say next. I don't listen to you guys. I just think of when I can jump in and, and say well, something. Clearly. Now there's just another Now is the time silence. for you to jump in and say something. Well, I will say this. People remember Lawson Krause eating the worm in the Everglades, right? Because when I brought that up during the trade, everybody's like, what are you talking about? I remember it. Connor McDavid bet him, I don't know how much money, like 100 bucks that Killing he wouldn't me. eat a worm. This is a future feature I was looking at, and oh. now you've killed it. Well, we can just edit the entire uh, podcast out. But, uh, yeah, he ate the worm on the boat. He ate the worm. If there was a name for this podcast today, it would be He Ate the Worm. So that's the... Uh, the sheriff. You're getting a character, yes. Wasn't it Harvey that told us that, too? The sheriff, yeah. The sheriff. nickname, I like it. Because you don't – look, you don't mess with Lawson Kraus, obviously. Maybe you're less likely to mess with – well, I don't think people are going to mess with Max Domi after he showed last year he's going to fight back anytime you, <laughs> you, you do. But you, know, you, you have all these other potential uh, prospects coming up, whether it's Christian Dvorak or Dylan Strom or all these guys we've talked about all year. Maybe you're less likely to uh, take liberties with them, Milan Lucic if you've got Lawson Kraus skating around back there. But also all those guys and their ability, especially like Dvorak and company that are, can play in the AHL are going to be hindrances to him because the team knows, well, we can, these guys couldn't come up in a month, two months, three weeks versus Kraus would, would have to make a decision for the season. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's even another good point. If, you, if he's playing with these guys down the line in the AHL or whatever, there's a lot of guys in the AHL that'll take liberties because they don't really care. It's, you're not, it's, it's not a player that's getting paid $5 million to have an NHL career. There's guys in the AHL that just want to make a name for themselves. So Maybe they'll re-sign Joel Recklich again. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk about Rafi Torres? Is that where you're going with this? I, no, it's we a can. natural segue from yeah. where we are right now. Uh, yeah, if you check your calendar, I believe it says 2016 on it, and Rafi Torres has been offered a PTO. Oh, wait, mine doesn't. It still says 2014. Okay, I'll change that. Yes, Rafi Torres has been offered a, uh, a PTO by the Carolina Hurricanes. That's why? Correct. I think, honestly, if you want to know why, just so Jamie could randomly show up where I was on Monday night and hold his phone out and be like, look, this is real. <laughs> Jamie wasn't there, and then he was. And yeah, that's, I just appear. You want my take on why Rafi Torres is on I've a given PTO all my, for Carolina? I've given all my time to you. You're giving, <laughs> just giving all my time to you. How much time do we have? <laughs> I, I wouldn't need more than 20 seconds. I think Rafi Torres is there to play preseason games and prevent other players from taking liberties with their young players. Because, let's face it, you, you don't want anybody injured in the preseason, and you don't really want to play your key players in the preseason anyway. So he's there to take up ice time and protect people, and, and then I think he'll be gone. They don't play the Blackhawks in the preseason, do they? Yeah. 
<laughs> I haven't looked. There that did go. not factor into my comments. Yeah, okay. That would be funny, though, if they did play the Blackhawks again. Is he still the most hated hockey player in Chicago? I would, I would think, so. think so. Yeah, he's probably pretty high on the list. Um, not number one. Okay. I'd have to think about that. That could be a, a Lipinski list, which oh, there you, go. you probably most, didn't come with today, right? Most, oh, I absolutely did. I'm putting together my own list, so okay. get ready for it at the end. Okay. Um, they, last, do not, they do not, by the way. <laughs> that's a shame. Yeah, look that up, Jamie. Las Vegas, do they have a team name yet? Possibly. It sounds like they've narrowed it down to, like, 20 choices. <laughs> so we are getting closer. Uh, do you like any of the, the more prevalent names you're hearing? What are the three real names? Because I found a list online that was 40 names that aren't real names. Yeah, none of them were. Cl- Desert Knights? S- Sand Knights? No, really? I, I don't like, I don't Desert like Knights. Sand Knights at all. Sand Knights is an awful name. About the I don't even know why. I, I, I don't know what it does to me, but it, it just doesn't work. Yeah, sand knights. It doesn't sound intimidating. Well, there are no knights in the sand, first of all. Well, yeah. I mean, a different kind of knight, of course. But yeah, see, the list I have. Knights don't roam the sand. <laughs> says the Las Vegas Eagles that aren't bald but are also knights that live in the desert. I don't think that's <laughs> Sounds a like real a money python yes, line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to see that written on the front of the jersey and then around the back of the jersey, especially if they just sign an like acronym. Vladimir Nemesnikov and put his name on there, too. Uh, it's just going to be the night, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're working towards here. I, I feel like there's going to be a, a something knights to this. Yeah, knights will be in it somehow. I don't. Foley seems determined to have knights in it. I somehow, don't want desert way. knights because I don't want desert knights or we don't. Sand they don't care knights. what we think, but I don't think either of those are good. Well, no, names. I mean we set the tempo on this show, so let's just name this right. team right now. Bill, don't name it either of those. Craig is speaking into the microphone now, so you know he's serious. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll go with the Knights. Just the Knights. If he wants the Knights, then what's the problem? I mean, he very clearly, that's what he I wants. I think they'd like a lot of other names. That they're Copyright told they issues, can't use. things like that, I think. Yeah. Copyright issues. You always yeah. come in here with those. All right, do we have anything else? It's not a problem. Them? If they were in China, it wouldn't be a problem, but it's a problem here. But then transportation would be an issue. Yeah, but they, they would true. be uh, competing with that KHL team. So That's true. Saturate the market. I don't know what division they'd be in, too. I don't Pacific. know where to go from Pacific, yeah. They'd just keep them in the Pacific, Pacific. And, and make the teams in the Pacific travel twice as far as everybody else. Okay, we're going to start the, uh, the previews right now. We're going to get into Nashville first with Adam Vingan of the Tennessean. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Adam Vingan, V-I-N-G-A-N. All right, Adam, we're going to get, just get right into it because I know you're on a tight window here, and, and we sent you some of these questions. But again, let's start with this. There have been numerous seasons over the past decade where the Preds felt really good about their future, yet they didn't advance deep into the playoffs. Last year, they go seven games in the Western Conference semifinals before losing their deepest advance ever. When you combine that with the recent moves that they've made and one of the best GMs, in my opinion, in the game, is Nashville truly ready to take that next step? Uh, they certainly think they are, and, and they're hopeful that they've made the right move to do so. It really excuse me, starts a couple years ago when they fired Barry Cross. Uh, the only coach they had ever known at the time, and they hired Peter LaViolette, uh, David Poyle, the general manager that you were alluding to, wanted to move his team more from that defensive-minded system that the Predators had always been associated with, fair or not, and wanted to move into more of a speed game, more of an offensive game, and of course, Peter LaViolette has made his uh, NHL coaching career on playing that sort of certain style, so over the last couple of years, they've been adjusting their roster accordingly. Of course, over the last uh, six or seven months, they've done it more uh, more starkly. Of course, uh, trading uh, for Ryan Johansson, uh, giving up Seth Jones in early January, and then trading 
P.K. Weber for P.K. Subban in late June. So the moves are certainly there, but there are other ones as well. Acquiring a player like Philip Forsberg and trading for James Neal and, and players like that. So the moves, it's been a slow evolution. Of course, last year, regular season-wise, they were nowhere near as good as they were the previous year, where 60 games into the season, they look like a lock for the President's Trophy before they faltered down the stretch. But as you mentioned, their longest playoff run in franchise history last year, 14 games, won their first ever Game 7 against Anaheim, lost Game 7 uh, against San Jose. And you look at the way they lost that game against San Jose, they were dismantled uh, in San Jose in Game 7. But I don't think that should take away from the steps they certainly made. Uh, I don't have them in the upper echelon yet of NHL teams. I think they're maybe knocking on the door of that second tier, though, uh, of contenders in both the Western Conference and Eastern Conference. So I think they entered this season uh, with more potential for a long run than maybe they've ever had in their history. Okay, let me follow up with this then. First, do you think it's fair to say that the Preds are no longer flying under the radar? And if so, will those expectations be a new challenge for them? In other words, what could hold them back this season? Well, I think that under the radar uh, methodology, I think went out the window when they were really good a couple years ago, when they were leading the NHL and, and after the All-Star break, and I don't think they lost consecutive games until like January or February. I think that's sort of where that under the radar uh, aspect dissipated. Um, certainly last year, they, they came in knowing that they were going to have heightened expectations because of how well they played in the regular season for most of it. And, and at the beginning of the season, it looked like they certainly weren't going to live up to those expectations. They they won seven of their first nine games. They were on top of the Western Conference early, and then in the middle of the season, they just fell apart. They were one of the worst teams in the NHL in the middle part of the season, so probably between maybe games 20 and 40. They, they were quite bad, um, but their second half was, was one of the best in the NHL. Um, they had a franchise record 14-game point streak that certainly put them in position to make the playoffs, So there was a point leading into the All-Star break where you were wondering whether or not this was going to be a playoff team. They won four games in a row entering the All-Star break, which was here in Nashville, and they picked it back up shortly after the All-Star break ended in mid-February. Um, answer your second question, I think the thing that may hold them back this year is a position that historically has been very good for them, and that's goaltending. For all of the uh, all the improvements they've made over the last several months, of course, you've got a budding star in Philip Forsberg, you've got uh, a premier showman in P.K. Subban, while also forgetting you also have Roman Yossi already on the roster. That arena last year was terrible. Uh, overall, I, I think while he certainly had his moments particularly I look at game six and seven of their first round series against Anaheim, he was impenetrable. But through most of the season, he was just wildly inconsistent. I mean, he had a game percentage of 9.08, and I think the league average was 9.15. He had a goals against average of about two and a half. Um, he started 66 games, but there were a lot of games where he wasn't making the saves necessary for them to win. And you have to wonder how much he has left playing in the World Cup of Hockey, I think, will help him getting into mid-season form earlier in the season, but he's going to turn 34 early in the season, and while he certainly has had a very successful career individually, you wonder how much time Pecorino has left to be considered one of the top goaltenders in the NHL. Say 
if he plays like he did last year, the team's not going to go anywhere. Uh, they need him to be much better. And even if he's a league average goalie, I think that's going to be enough. Adam, we, we kind of talk about some of the new players on this team, especially P.K. Subban. Just in general, there's not usually a lot of big-name players getting traded in the NHL, but when there is, it <laughs> seems like Nashville's involved. Uh, Philip Forsberg, James Neal, Ryan Johansson, P.K. Subban, just over the last few years, is there a better GM in the NHL right now for this team than David Poyle? And I, I guess I can answer the second part. There isn't a more aggressive GM right now, is there? No, the thing about David Boyle is that while he certainly makes these aggressive moves, he also makes really shrewd, under-the-radar moves as well. I mean, even if you go back to the trade for Philip Forsberg over three years ago now with Washington, I, I was covering the Capitals at the time, I was on the other end of that trade, uh, you know, w- watching it from that aspect. You know, Philip Forsberg, of course, was a first-round pick of the Capitals and hasn't really shown anything yet in the NHL is still playing overseas, but... You know, to be able to get a player like that for Martin Erat, who was scrungled and, and was bad for the Capitals, and Michael Latta, who is serviceable for the Capitals, now he plays the Los Angeles Kings. I mean, that was arguably the biggest steal, great headline steal in recent NHL history when you think about it. But you know, David Poyle knows that it's going to take these moves to win. I mean, he's a general manager who's been in the league combined with the Capitals and Panthers, excuse me, the Predators for uh, almost over 30 years. And I think he's only had a team make it out of the second round twice in those 30 years. And he knows that there's a stigma attached to him and, he, and his teams, and he doesn't want that to happen again. So he said he wasn't going to touch his defense. He pulled Seth Jones out and traded for Ryan Johansson because he knows they need a top centerman. He never imagined that they would trade Shea Weber, but with the way they want to play the game, P.K. Subban, I think, fits their up-tempo style a lot better than Shea Weber. So they're still... He understands that it's a business, and sometimes you have to, you know, per, you have to put those personal feelings aside. Some general managers don't necessarily understand that concept. You know, there's of course loyalty anywhere you go, but when it comes to making a team better, you can see that David Poyle is going to make the moves necessary uh, to make his team better. And you mentioned all the trades he's made. You know, there hasn't been a general manager who's made moves outside of the organization to bring talent in as well as he has over the last few years. How has the reception been to the larger-than-life personality that is P.K. Subban? Uh, it's been great. I mean, you, I, I'm sure you saw the video in July. First got here, got off the plane, went right to Sissy's on Broadway, did some Johnny Cash on stage. I mean, he's the perfect player, I think, for... Nashville as a city, not just the team and how he fits into the team, but the city. And that doesn't take anything away from Montreal, which is a, one of the the continent's most fantastic cities. But Nashville just has this vibrancy that I think is unmatched in a lot of places. And then P.K. Subban certainly fits into that. Uh, from the few times he's been here since the trade, he certainly embraced it, and the fans seem to really enjoy him. And you know, losing Shea Weber was tough for a lot of people in this region simply because a lot of people learned to love the game of hockey because of Shea Weber. Uh, and he's certainly the greatest homegrown product they've ever had. But when you get a player like P.K. Subban, who's younger and flashier, and put him on the team in this city that certainly respects the flashier elements of entertainment, I, I think it's a perfect fit. And, uh, of course, he's got to put it on the ice, which I think he will, because he's shown he can but in terms of generating interest in the Predators, not only in Nashville, but from outside 
of Nashville, I, I think there are going to be more eyes on the Predators, not just the way we talked about them being a good team, but because of PK. I think there are going to be more eyes on them this year than they've ever had. You touched on this already, but how does this blue line look different, play differently with P.K. Subban as its anchor? Well, he, certainly you look at the way he likes to play the game. Even the day of the trade back in June, I remember asking Peter Laviolette, of course both Shea Weber and P.K. Subban are referred to on the surface level as offensive defensemen, but how do they go about playing the game that's different? from each other. And Shea Weber, of course, we know he's got a great slap shot. He's a powerful man. He, he's not afraid to, to mix it up in the corners and in the so-called dirty areas. Uh, but P.K. Subban is a constant motion. He can bring the puck all the way up the ice, never stop moving his feet. He can lead a rush. And you've got guys on this team already that can do that. Of course, with all the talk about P.K. Subban, you know, he's a great defenseman. You could argue he may not even be the best defenseman on his team. I mean, Roman Yossi has been spectacular these past few seasons and, quite frankly, has carried his pair with Shea Weber over the last few years. Uh, you know, you can see it in Norris Trophy's voting over the last couple of years just how highly people are starting to think of Roman Yossi. Um, but when you put those two together, they could be on a pair, they could be split up. You've got Ryan Ellis, he's also a great puck mover. You've got is a great all-around defenseman, and you go out and you sign two veteran puck movers and Yannick Weber and Matt Carl. I mean, the defense is moving towards speed. I mean, we saw with the Penguins and the Stanley Cup and winning the championship that teams value that speed. Now you've got six guys on your defense who can move the puck and skate and contribute offensively. I mean, that's what Peter Laviolette was. I think any that has championship aspirations that needs to have a mobile defense and I think the Predators certainly do I would challenge anybody to find a top four in the NHL that's better than Nationals I mean I've certainly thought about it over the last couple months I, I can't think of one and it'll be very intriguing to see how those four of those players are paired and how they do on the ice yeah, it's, it's tough to argue against that. And, you know, it, in today's NHL, it's essentially gospel that you don't win the cup without a franchise center and an elite D-man. You guys probably have two elite D-men and a pretty solid uh, defense core behind them as well. In your mind, are they set on the blue line and up the middle in that regard? I think they are set on the blue line. Um, they've got two guys as well, Peter Granberg and Anthony DiPetto, who will push for playing time on that third pair. I think having uh, Ryan Johansson as the number one center entering camp is, is great. Uh, they need a young guy with his skill set right from the start. I think on the wings, their set, of course, is Bill Forsberg and James Neal, who are the Predators' first pair of 30-goal scorers in a decade. They've got Craig Smith, who consistently puts in 20 goals. They've got Colin Wilson, who can be maddening in his inconsistency, but has 18 points in his last 20 playoff games. So if he can put that kind of production together, you know, it certainly helps. And then you've got younger uh, contributors like Victor Arvidsson, who scored a big goal in the playoffs. And you've got Kelly Yarncroft, who signed a contract extension this summer. The question I have is the same question I had entering camp last year. Now it's not one and two centers, now it's two and three. But you've got two 36-year-olds, Mike Fisher and Mike Ribeiro, entering your second and third line. So, you know, I certainly see value in Mike Fisher. He had a great postseason, five goals, if I recall correctly, obviously scored the big wins. Probably the biggest goal in franchise history in that triple overtime game against San Jose in the second round in game four. But Mike Ribeiro is a question mark for me. He had 50 points last year, which is which is solid for a guy his age. And you expect those numbers from him. But he was scratched in two games in the playoffs in the second round and David Coyle said after the season that 
he would have to have, quote, the summer of his life, end quote, in order to retain his top six spot. But I don't think he's going to be up there anymore. He may. He's going to have to earn it. I don't think that veteran status is going to give him any favors. Um, so I don't think they're going to make any other moves. I, I think they're happy with that top three in some capacity. They let go of Paul Bostad this summer after a four-plus season. So their new fourth-line center projects to be Colton Sisson, who was their captain in Milwaukee in the AHL last year. A solid guy, a little bit more offensive upside uh, than Paul Gossett. But of course, Gossett is a face-off specialist. And, I, and his four and his four full seasons in Nashville, no player started more of their shift in the defensive zone than Paul Gossett. So they, they certainly have to, uh, to replace that, but they get a younger version than a guy who can certainly contribute offense as well. They want more scoring from their bottom six, so... I think right now they're set. They don't think they need to make any more big moves. I think they've done that over the last few months. It's just about putting the pieces in place. Adam, what are the options if Mike Ribeiro does, in fact, fall out of favor? What, what do they do? Do they have any options at all at that position? That, if that were to happen, they would probably need to go out and, and get somebody. Maybe they do have players within the system who could fill that role eventually. I look at Vladislav Kamenev in particular, but I'm not sure he's ready for full-time NHL duty. You know, that would may require for them finding a better player. But I, I think they have the faith in Mike Rivero to, to see it through. He only had one year left on his contract. They didn't buy him out this summer. So I, I, they know that when he's on his game, he can contribute. Um, it's just a matter of making sure that he can keep up. And uh, that will be something to watch early on. Okay. You know, we just talked about those two aging centers, two 36-year-old centers. But one of the things that strikes me about this roster there are only four players over the age of 30, including those two, Carl and Rene, are the others. The Preds have done a pretty good job of retooling with youth, and I know that's not really a question, but I'd like your thoughts on that and how this ro- roster is constructed, the philosophy behind that. Yeah, you think about some of these big-name players you had. Before they signed Mac Carl in late July, when he was bought out before free agency because Tampa needed all the money they could get to, to sign even Stamkos to Victor Hedman. He was, the Predators had no defenseman on their roster over the age of, I think, 28. And, you know, he he's comes in at 31. He's their most experienced defenseman. But, I mean, you look at their key core players. You look at P.K. Subban, Roman Jones, Matias Eckholm, Ryan Ellis, Ryan Johansson, Philip Forsberg, James Neal, Colin Wilson, Greg Smith, Kylie Armstrong. They, these guys are all in their mid to late 20s. You know, Philip Forsberg is only 22 years old. Ryan Johansson is 24, 25. I mean, that's what you need. You mentioned needing a franchise centerman and a franchise elite defenseman. I mean, when you, if you want to single out Philip Forsberg, uh, Ryan Johansson, Roman Josie, and P.K. Subban, you've got guys who are all in their early to mid-20s. I mean, that's, if you're building a team, that's what you want. You want guys who are going to be perennial all-star candidates at a young age. So they're certainly set up. I mean, of course, they need those contributions from those older players, particularly Mike Fisher and Pecorine, but, you know, they're certainly moving away from the old guard. We've got a lot of young, very good talent and under really good contracts as well, long-term contracts that are cost-effective. So, you know, they're built to compete for the next several years. Uh, you, met, you mentioned Yarncrook, and that was one of the more odd kind of contract dis- uh, constructions with the length at a $2 million per year value. What, what are they... F- think he's going to provide to them right now this year and long term well you know i'll be interested to see if he does have a long-term future here because when i look at that contract you know generalmanager.com had an interesting statistic if i remember it correctly they're roughly 
150 contracts currently in the NHL that are at least six years in length, and his annual average value of $2 million is the lowest captain of those 150 contracts of six years or more. Um, that contract screams to be expansion draft. I mean, because if you're Las Vegas, you get a guy who had 30 points last year, who had a career, it was a career year, played top line minutes of Brian against his big deal, which led to those 30 points. It's versatile to play at center, both wings, all up and down the lineup. You get it at five, for five more years at $2 million a year. You take that. I mean, I, I, I would be surprised if Callie Armstrong is on this team at this time next year. But if he has an even better year for 40, 45 points, it may be hard to, to, to hold him, you know, not to protect him. But, you know, he is sort of their utility player. He's a guy that can bounce around the lineup. If they want if they want more scoring in their top five and six, he can go down and play third line. If they want a guy top line left wing, he can do that too. So he certainly has that value there. But when I saw that contract, the first thing I thought to myself was, there's, I can't imagine there's a way that he doesn't get scooped up by Las Vegas next year. Uh, Adam, last one here for you. Kevin Fiala, number 11 overall pick in 2014. Is this the year he finally sticks at the NHL level? Or if it's not him, is there another prospect we should be keeping an eye on? I think he's the one that people should keep an eye on. Uh, and last year was rough for him at the start. I mean, he, he trained all summer in Nashville last summer to make the roster. He gets a tight training camp. He goes down to a, the AHL, has a bad attitude, gets suspended for a couple games for flicking off the uh, Lake Erie bench in one game. Isn't scoring. I think he had more, uh, he had as many suspensions as, as gold at one point. Or, but at the end of the season, he turned it around. He ended up with 50 points, I think, with the team. Came up here in January, played top line minutes, scored his first NHL goal. I mean, you have to keep in mind he's only 19 or 20 years old. I mean, yes, he was drafted a couple years ago, but he's still very young. He said during the development camp this summer that I have to respect the process. You know, I'm not going to think that I'm going to be gifted an opportunity to come up here. I understand that guys my age, they take a, it takes them a long time to work up here, and it's very rare that the kid my age gets a chance right away. So he certainly has matured significantly in terms of his attitude over the last year, but he's a very talented kid, um, and I think there is a place for him on this team. I'm not sure if it's right out of camp, or if he's going to be the first go-to call-up at some point during the year, but you know, he's a guy that I, that I have routinely watched when he's on the ice, because he certainly has a skill to help this team, but uh, you know it's still raw and he still has some things to learn. So you know they don't want to rush him, so they're not going to rush him. So uh, there are people here who wonder if it's not going to happen now. Is it ever going to happen? I think you have to realize, like I said, he's such a young kid. He's still a teenager, so you know the expectations are high, but I think they also need to be uh, reasonable as well. All right, Adam. Can't thank you enough for taking some time. Great insights on the Preds. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we will catch up with you down the road, and I'm sure I will see you at some point down the road at the rink. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Take care, Adam. At Nashville, uh, I'm guessing the same thing probably stood out to all of us, just his comments on Pecorine, because mm-hmm. you're talking about one of the few guys that has been a consistent a Vezina candidate over the last five, six, seven, eight years. Not that he's been up near the top every single year, but he's been a finalist a, a few times. That's actually not something that, that that happens all that often. It happens a whole lot less than you would think. If you go and, and you if you can find a website on the internet that actually has this, for some reason it's like a blind spot on the internet, but if you can find one that lists the finalists for awards year by year, there's not a lot of goalies that are 
repeat finalists for the Vezina Trophy. And Rene's been up there, uh, but to hear Adam Dock right there, not not all that impressed with his performance last year. And certainly, if Nashville's going to get where this roster might be cap- capable of taking them, they're going to need their goalie playing at his highest level. Yeah, and he's 33 years old now, going to turn 34 in November, I believe. So you start worrying about that. Can he still be a guy who can, you know, he's basically, he's logged, logged probably an average of about 65 games a year. That's a heavy workload. Can they rely on him to do that? And if they can't, what's their backup situation right now? They, it, it, they're not in a great situation back there if they can't rely on Pecorine being, you know, the, the stalwart that he's been for so many seasons. Yeah, it's funny because Adam, you know, you asked him and Adam said in there, I, I still don't think of this team as truly elite on that level with, I mean, he didn't specify teams, but obviously Chicago, Pittsburgh, the teams have been winning cups the last couple of years. But when you look at this roster, what's really keeping them from being elite other than, I mean, if, if, if Rene got hurt or played poorly last year, and I know you can only read so much into goalie numbers, but his goals against was 2.48. His safe percentage was 9.08. The year before, his goals against average was 2.18, and that's a lot closer to what we are used to seeing from him, and that was over 64 games. So I, I don't see him every day, obviously, like Adam does, but my thought when I look at the Predators is that Rene will be fine as long as he stays on the ice. But when you're counting on somebody to play 65 games in net, there is, there is inherent risk there. Yeah, and you know, as Craig points to all the time, we talk about depth down the middle at center, and that was, came up in the conversation of do they have the centers that can compete with the elite teams, not only in the Western Conference, but in the league. Part of building from the center out is also the goaltending position, and that's a huge question mark, and it's not like Nashville's defensive core is poor. Yeah, and let's it, great. Yeah. Okay, but let's 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 say Pecorino gets back to close to what he's been for you know much of his career, what we've seen from him, what we expected from him. Uh, you know, when they had better success, when they were when they were out here playing the Coyotes in 2012 in the playoffs, he was uh, considered one of the best in the game. What do they lack on this team other than that? As as Adam said, you'd be hard pressed to find a better blue line than what Nashville has right now. To me, again, I, I like some of their wings. I like how they look on the, on the edges. Does Ryan Johansson need to take another step forward to, to get to that elite status? And do you have faith in two 36-year-old centers behind him, in Mike Fisher and Mike Ribeiro? But I think by the very nature of that question, we're already putting them in that group of, if you're asking questions of, is Ryan Johansson quite good enough? Or, are they, or is their third-line center quite good enough? To me, then they are on the short list of teams that are contending for a cup. So those are legitimate questions, but not when you're talking about, hey, can this team make the playoffs? Those are, can this team win the Western Conference? And I, Look, if we all had to pick our team that's coming out of the West right now, and I guess we basically did that last week. You did. Well, yeah, you I took did. Chicago. I did, yeah. and I'm pretty confident in it uh, if I had to pick. I don't think any of us is going to say Nashville right now, but it wouldn't shock me if this team came no, out of the West. not at all. When we're nitpicking like that, as, as we've said many times, every team, if you go through every team in the West, really every team in the NHL, I mean, you know, there are a couple teams in the East that probably are more complete than anybody in the West right now. But if you go through every team in the West, they've all got flaws right now. Chicago has huge depth issues up front. So if we're just nitpicking saying, well, Pecorino can get back, and I'm not so not so confident or sold on their second-line center, this might be a team that's in the conversation. Maybe they're getting undersold a little bit here. I think they're one of the four best teams in the conference. Yeah, I mean, if, you're con- if your concern with Nashville is Pecorine, I feel pretty good about Nashville. Now, look, when you get into the playoffs, they don't have the ex- experience of, of succeeding in the playoffs the way some of those other teams that once they get there, Chicago being one of them, L.A. up until the last two years, there are certain teams that when they get in the playoffs – 
they turn it on or whatever, whether it's hitting another gear or they just, they know they've cracked the code already. Nashville hasn't. Yeah, and yet you were one game away from the conference finals last year yeah. and you've added P.K. Subban. That's the thing. I think there's a happy so, medium here. They're, they're not the young team that's just getting there for the first time and trying to experience this all on the fly, but they're also not Chicago where they've, okay, there's no, they might lose a series, but there's no deficit that they're going to face that they haven't seen already. It's interesting to me when people talk about potential teams that could fall out of the top eight in the Western Conference, or if they're just talking about the Central Division, you're trying to make the case for Winnipeg sneaking in, or whatever it is, who's going to drop out? And so they, the general consensus seems to be, well, the top three will be Chicago, St. Louis, uh, and Dallas in some order. I don't think Nashville's a wild card team. I think they're they're yeah, Nashville's going to finish second in that division. Yeah, I, I wouldn't shock me if they won that division in the regular Who's season. Who's winning that division? Dallas? Dallas. Yeah, I, I think the same. I, I sort of expect... Chicago to be third. I, I would not be surprised at all if St. Louis dropped quite a bit. They lost a lot. We keep hearing that Kevin Shattenkirk's still on the market. I would expect him to be moved at some point. They've taken a lot of hits. I don't know, I don't know about St. Louis I don't think anymore. A, I don't think that's a playoff team right now. Really? Because, no, because I think they're going to struggle, and then they're going to sell. I, I think they are. It's very fair to say they're the only team in that, that top of the Central Division that's taken a step back. I mean, Minnesota hasn't taken a step back, really, either. I still think of St. Louis as a playoff team, but... It wouldn't shock me if they were the second wild card. People just have them penciled in as first or second in that division. Look at Nashville. Look at Chicago. Nashville, but again, yeah, Nashville I don't think Dallas Chicago cares. Class that division with Chicago not too far behind. And, yeah. and I don't think Chicago cares about the regular season. I mean, I'm factoring that in. I think they care, but, you know, you, you, you use it for what you use it for at this point. Well, You're yeah. so experienced. And, if, yeah, and if Dallas somehow finds a goaltender out there on the market— Look out for that team. If that team finds a goaltender, they're my cup favorite. And again, although it didn't quite work out as planned for L.A., don't fully discount for Chicago the having a longer offseason than usual. Yeah. yeah. And, and don't forget that, again, Chicago was in Game 7 against St. Louis and hit two posts. I mean, we'll Brent see. Seabrook hit two posts Brent, yeah, on the, on same, the shot. same shot. Yeah, it's not like they hit two in the series. They hit two in the third period of Game 7. Over to Edmonton, a team that hasn't seen Game 7 since 2006. They're still, they're Last time they were in the playoffs. The, usually they're kind of still maybe in the playoff run by Game 7 of the regular season. No. They're not mathematically eliminated That's, that's fair. You know mm-hmm. that cup from 2006 that Jamie always just trashes, the, uh, the Carolina-Edmonton mm-hmm. series? Those two teams have been to a combined one playoffs since then. That season basically doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> did anything from that season carry over for the Sorry, rest of Ray the Whitney, if you're listening. Yes, those <laughs> seasons didn't count. Well, if that's the case, I don't know how long it's been since Edmonton has been to the playoffs. But uh, is there any chance this no. team? Okay, all right. So then, stop it. So then, let's just get into. Okay, so that's the end of this discussion. Let's move on to Washington, Washington. now. Yeah. But why did you wedge Edmonton between Nashville and Washington? It's not inconceivable that Nashville and Washington. I like is to challenge you guys. We have, a, we have a great conversation coming up. So that's your reward for working your way through yeah, this the, Edmonton Oilers. The Washington side. conversation is a good one. I think Edmonton is an interesting team. They're just. Well, they have Connor McDavid. They should be interesting. They gave up Taylor, Taylor Hall, Hall for pennies on the it's dollar. It's like you, you know the whole you can't turn away from a train wreck. The, the human nature aspect of it. That's what the Oilers are. The Oilers. I think. And look, we've talked about the Taylor Hall trade extensively. I think it was an awful trade, and you guys, if anything, feel stronger that it was an awful trade. But I think they can get away with it because you're gonna. I would assume have a healthy Connor McDavid, and Jesse Pugliarvi fell to them at, at pick four too. I mean, this is. If he pans out, then you're, you're feeling a lot they have better. There's so many good embarrassment pieces, but, of riches up But front. how can you be confident? I mean, this team, I mean, embarrassment of riches, they've had that. 
Well, yeah. I mean, and I'm they, just, they're still not any better than they were before they drafted Taylor Hall. Staying, saying specifically to the the movement of Taylor Hall for Adam Larson, they might be able to get away with that and, and point at the end of the year and say, hey, look, our blue line's better and our forwards didn't take that much of a step back. It's like the guy that has just a ton of money and he ends up blowing through it all because he goes out and just buys random frivolous things at the store and, and pays top dollar for them. They didn't need to trade Taylor Hall to get a defenseman of Adam Larson's caliber. But they did need to upgrade the blue line. And I guess in a weird way they have. Yeah, and that's my... I, I, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Is it is it possible that this blue line could be better than we think? There's young players here that could take a step forward and maybe they could surprise us a little bit. <laughs> you, can see, you can hear it in my tone. I'm trying I to convince myself here that too. there's... I, mean, I don't expect the Oilers blue line to be elite. Is there any way that you believe this blue line could be competent well to answer your first question it can't be worse than jamie thinks it is <laughs> so it can't be yes. worse than the devils that's, that's true. true that's so very so true you got that going for i'll you. give them positive which is nice it's just the style that team plays puts a lot of pressure on the defenseman and the goaltender to clean up mistakes that's a very freewheeling team and i just don't think they have the talent to match up and i, I they're going is their defensive core going to be better than it was last year i think so how much better, and will it matter enough when it comes to how many points they're going to get? I don't know. I can play devil's advocate for you a little bit. You guys are going to put me in the uncomfortable position of trying to defend the Oilers, and I will once again throw out the caveat that I hated that trade. But I like Todd McClellan as a coach. I like Connor McDavid, obviously. Uh, I, I do think guys like Dreisaitl get a little bit better this year. I mean, I'm assuming health, which has also been an issue for the Oilers. I don't think they make the playoffs this year. But if they're ever going to improve, this is the year, correct? <laughs> this should be the year they begin to take the step. Uh, for the millionth time, they should begin to take the steps toward. If the podcast had existed there. last year, we would have said the same thing last year, and, and probably the year, the year before, before as well. Though that, I mean, uh, now Connor McDavid's a generational talent, so yes, that's, yeah, I guess I would say he's coming off his rookie season. So, yeah, as he progresses, you would expect this team to progress. And when you look at, you, you just mentioned Drysaddle. When you look at this team up the middle. You're feeling pretty good about him, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. I was feeling better with Taylor Hall, but yeah. You, yeah, I mean, so in terms of the key pieces for a team when you're building, you want center, you want an elite blue liner, which they still don't have. No, no. But again, that's to win a cup. And Craig's getting right, emotional. Right, right. And we always yeah. do about the Oilers. So, okay, but do they have, if, if these young pieces keep progressing, do they have enough to push for a playoff spot? Again, it's the Western Conference, too. So it's really hard. It is. But yeah. I'm saying more so, can they get into the conversation where we're still talking about them in the playoff race in March? I, no. it's, it, there's a huge jump to get into the top eight. But if they're 10th, then we're talking about them in March. I don't think we're going to be talking about them in any sort of seriousness. And again, I, 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 know, we, I, know, we, I know I give them particularly a lot of crap. And I, I do like the direction they're going. I like the pieces. Again, having a game-changing franchise center changes everything. Mm -hmm. Changes everything. And regardless, Nugent Hopkins wasn't that. No. He was never going to no. be that. So it changes everything. I like where they're going. I just don't think they're going to be that much better this season than they were last year. They'll be a little better. If McDavid plays a full season, they'll automatically be better. If Pugliarvi gives them anything of substance, they'll be a little bit better. Having Adam Larson helps that blue line. They just gave up way too much talent to do that. So they'll miss the playoffs again and presumably draft a defenseman this time. No, no, what will happen right? is they'll still win the lottery. Yeah. And, and, that, and draft a forward. That's that's what it's like. Shirelli went in and bought something he needed from the grocery store. He desperately needed water, right? So he got water, but he, he only had bar. He, he only had a hundred dollars, and he was like, "Keep the change." That's basically what it was. And Ray Shiro, for some reason, was working the register at this uh, grocery store. 
you, right. it's very, it's very <laughs> uncharacteristic for Shirelli to, you know, trade high, high town assets for just been trying subpar to returns, Jamie right? For about it 10 really minutes was. now. Like, we have a question here is Shirelli crazy or an evil genius? And I'm just not even bother answering that question. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was my question for you. But if you would be so kind as to read the rest of the question, like can you get away with making that, that trade? Or a defenseman. Well, can he get away with it? Will because he? Because there's so much up front. They will get away with it because they'll say, "Look at what Lucic did, and Adam Larson oh, made us better." Let's talk. But let's, is that team any better? Mm. That's the, he'll get away with it, I think, from the fan base. But I'm not sure the team's going to be better. Okay, well let's let's talk about Lucic then, because you yeah, brought him up. How does that look two years down the road to you? Two years down the road, not nearly as good as as it does now. I mean, what, it's hard for me to look at anything the Oilers did this summer without lumping in Taylor Hall, because I have to think that they're thought process was we don't need Hall we're going to get Lucic and if that was their thought process I'm done talking about them I mean honestly if that was the thought process I don't mind Lucic as a player I think he's going to be very productive this year especially if he skates alongside McDavid there is sort of a dichotomy there can he teach them a, a I guess can he teach them a certain style or a certain certain commitment that maybe this team has lacked in the past maybe that's an element that we're not that, looking that, at that's and, what you hope that he we, brings that hey I've one, yeah. And when, I, I have we had John Rosen on the show talking about what a great influence Lucic was in the locker room as well. So, in L.A. of all you know, places, you know, we talk about that a lot. A lot of guys will be talked about as great locker room influences, but on a on a team like this, we we've, we've said it ourselves in the past. Edmonton never had those guys around to teach these guys how to play the game. They didn't have the key veterans like a Shane Doan to say, "This is the way it's done. Follow me." Maybe he's that guy. Maybe he can have that sort of influence on him. Maybe we're underselling that as well. Do you think he'll still have that influence in 2022? <laughs> no. I mean, that's the problem. You need to be able to play. Yes, it is. <laughs> the problem is not with this year. I think, I think that, that top line, if, if it is Lucic and Connor McDavid and whoever, is going to be a very compelling and entertaining line, not just because of McDavid. I want to see how those two play off each other. And Lucic scores goals. That's, this is not like a guy that just goes out and runs people over. He does that too, but he scores goals. But when you look six years down the line and he's going to be – his style of play at age 34, 35, 36 or whatever is not nearly – No, he's not going to be effective. I, that, Seven years, part. $42 million. Is just They overpaid dramatically. And, and people have said that that's, that's the case in Edmonton too. You have to overpay to get players to come there. But You shouldn't. To play on a line with McDavid? You would think that that would be changing now with Connor McDavid up there. Yeah, but Peter Shirelli obviously took it to mean that I also have to overpay to get rid in of trades players. to get players. <laughs> Someone should probably correct him on that. What do you think McDavid's ceiling is in terms of points this year? Because I, I talking with Jamie last year, I, I don't want to misquote you, especially since you're right here. I'd much rather do it when you weren't listening and you yeah, couldn't so defend yourself. On it. But did you not make the case that McDavid might be the next 100-point scorer that I we see? I said he would be the next 100-point scorer. Obviously, we had one last year. But just in general, I mean, do you think— I didn't expect somebody else to get 100 last year. I also didn't expect him to get 100 last year. Do you yeah. think he gets it this year? No, but I think he can He can be a point per game. I think yeah, he can be I, in that 80 too. to 85. Well, he was, and you know, we had that whole argument about the Calder Trophy. Could he have sustained it? Yeah, I don't think he would have sustained it throughout the season, season, but yeah. I think growing— Yes. And you put that together, I think he's an 80 to 85 point player if he stays I'd healthy for most of the season. If he's an 85 point player, then this team's still going to be irrelevant in March. There's, there's just when's the last time you saw a team with a player that was in the top five in scoring not not, not even be in the conversation? Ottawa's calling. Who? Oh, Eric Carlson. Okay, fine, but but they're still in the conversation usually. Not, barely. 
Well, I'm not saying the Oilers are going to win the Cup. Well, technically, almost everybody's in the conversation. Usually, we say no, Thomas not and Edmonton are out of the conversation, yes. and everybody else is exactly. in. Exactly. If we were talking about but, any I mean, other team, I wouldn't make convers- a point. I mean, if you're eight points back and there are three teams to jump in March, you're not going to make the playoffs. Right. You're just not. So yes, it's it's the whole like baseball second wild card thing. Like yeah, sure, this team that's five games back with a hundred teams to jump is technically still in the race, but they're really not. <laughs> this is great too because I had your, uh, I just had a list of different questions pulled up on the screen, and I thought this was for Edmonton, and it just said what could hold them back. <laughs> I like, well, I'd come up with about fifteen different things. Oh boy, no. Now, what about Cam Talbot? Well, I mean, you look at his numbers. At, yeah, I know. I know I'm the one that asked this question. Have they found their goaltender? When you look at the the stats and the fact that he's facing so much work and that's probably a concern going forward if that doesn't change yeah but 31.1 shots per game which tied for fourth worst in the league Edmonton he's got a career 924 save percentage they might have found their goalie here I was very impressed by him last yeah. year because I think you would make the case when he originally went over there it's tough to differentiate between how what, what his talent level is and the style the Rangers tend to play to, to suppress shots I mean you, you're going to have a higher save percentage typically when you're playing for the Rangers and you are for Edmonton but the, the fact that he put up last year on a team that really had, did not try to help him very much. It was the, the complete away. opposite of the Rangers. That, really. That's pretty good. Now, you, you still want to worry about that workload because at some point that's going to catch up to him, whether it's injuries or just you know law of averages. If you allow so many shots, even if you have a good save percentage, yeah. more are going to go in than normal. But that, if he, I need to see it again another year. But they very well might have found their answer there for yeah, now. Yeah, 917 save percentage on that team is that's pretty darn good. I thought it was certainly worth – a second look based on like Jamie just said it's not like he was drafted and came up through the Oilers system and then stepped in last year faced a lot of shots and was just kind of you know on his game or whatever for a nice run he was coming from a team that that blocked everything in front of him and then last year instantly he's on a team that almost just seems to turn and say hey here's our goalie shoot at him and see what he can do and I thought he held up fairly well about as well as you could ask for an unproven commodity yeah and I mean if Rob Bowman has a, a quality start percentage to use for goaltenders and his last Talbot's last year in New York had him at about 50 percent and he finished seventh in the Vesna voting that year in Edmonton it was 49.1 percent so very very close with again facing a lot more shots in general probably more higher quality shots given what that blue line looked like I don't think there's anything negative I could say about Cam Talbert's last year. And if he just put, if he does it again, then I think there's no reason for us to doubt him other than if somehow he gets hurt. And we're talking about another building block for the Edmonton Oilers. I'm getting the clint. You can hear it in my yeah. voice. No, I've, never, really I've never heard you like this other than when we talk about the Oilers. This is my last thing on the Oilers because I know you guys don't like talking about them. But they don't have a captain. Is Connor McDavid do – you, do you leave that captaincy vacant for a year? Is Connor McDavid already ready at this ridiculously young age? Is that too much pressure to put on him when you kind of just want him to go out there and be himself maybe for a full year first? I think that'd be way too much pressure. But I'm also, we're not in that locker room. I don't, I don't know who may be the silent leaders uh, in that locker room. Who is the vocal leader? Do you put on a new guy like Lucic? Do you put on somebody that's been in that locker room for a little bit what longer? What if you just put it on Yakupov and see what happens? Uh, I, I think they still hate Yakupov. Okay. Well, he's still there. So. Yeah. But <clears throat> by the way, the answer. What, what, what happens with him moving forward? Well, I mean, he played well with McDavid, but I don't think he's going to get a ton of time with McDavid again this year. No, and he's an RFA next year, so I I do think that he's probably tradable. He's you know honestly he's the sort of player I may have traded for a second pairing defenseman if huh. I could do it. Interesting. Thought. And I you know I take a chance on Yakupov if I'm a team. Oh yeah, After getting him yeah. away from him. I mean, when he's played with a talented center, yep, he has shown flashes. He's, he's still, only 22. Still, yeah, so I, again, it was a week. Growth. It was a week top of the class. That where he was at, where everybody even knew in the, in the span of all the Oilers' number one picks, which I guess you can get confused nowadays. 
They knew that he was clearly the least raw talented of that group. Yes. But there's still a lot of talent there. I, I think getting him away from Edmonton would really help his game. And I think contract-wise, you'll still get him relatively cheap because he hasn't had an opportunity or maybe he just hasn't cashed in on the opportunity to prove himself yet at the NHL level. I hope he stays in the league, in the NHL. Oh, yeah. I hope he doesn't get, just go to I, the I hope, NHL. Well, because you never know with that kind of talent level, the money. Yeah, that's you fair. You worry about a team overseas throwing a lot of money at him if an NHL team goes, man. You're you're right. As a as a just a hockey fan, I would like to see what he does on on a different NHL team. Just just because I don't think we've we definitely haven't seen the best of Neil Yakupov yet, and I think it's still there. He's 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 a middle six guy that can be there for years. I think with it could even be a second line role depending on the center you play him with. You guys got anything else on the Oilers, or can we move on to the Washington Capitals? All right, so we're going to go to the Capitals. We're going to talk to Isabel Kershudian of the Washington Post. Her Twitter handle is I-K-H-U-R-S-H-U-D-Y-A-N. Good stuff on there, uh, and I have uh, high expectations. As I noted in our email exchange, uh, you know, we, we always compare notes, I think, beat writers, when, when we take our summer trips. And as I, as I said to you, I think you win summer with your trip. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you went this summer? Yeah, I did. I went to Bali uh, for 10 days. It was beautiful. Uh, did a lot of scuba diving. Um, and probably my craziest experience was with like, wildlife on land, though. I, a monkey attacked my mom in like, a forest we were at. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so I'll have that story forever. The look on her face was pretty priceless. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I haven't seen any beat raiders who taught me yet, so I think I'm taking the victory. Minimal damage from the monkey, I hope? Yeah, she was fine. She just, like, freaked out. She was holding a banana and wanted it. Um, (laughs) 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 All right, I I take it you did not get an invitation to Alex Ovechkin's wedding? No, you know what? I saw Barry Trotz around, uh, like, their practice facility probably, like, a week before that. There had been some, like, Russian tabloid speculation that Ovi had gotten married. So I saw Trotz, and I was like, hey, do you know if Ovi got married? He was like, no, he hasn't, like, returned my phone calls yet. Um, but he Uh-oh. said, like, if he ever got married, like, I'd be invited. Um, so I took that to, like, assume, like, maybe he didn't. Uh, and then I guess, like, Ovi got back to him and said he did, and then, like, shortly after that, like, announced it. So I guess, like, not many, very many people were invited at all, so I'm not taking it too personally. <laughs> Look forward to further details on that when he returns to the U.S. <laughs> Let's start with, with the eternal question about the Capitals. Uh, I, if I counted this right, and, and my math is uh, never... Uh, Sketchy at best. Yeah, you can never rely on it. <laughs> 41 seasons, 26 playoff berths, two conference final berths, uh, one Stanley Cup final berth, no cups, haven't been past the second round since 1998. What's holding the Caps back? Yeah, I mean, I think before maybe it was uh, the... You know, they didn't really have the right pieces around, like, Ovechkin, Backstrom, you know, and then sometimes it was that they didn't, you know, play defense. They were, like, a really just offense team under Boudreaux. Now I think they sort of are a much more complete team, and you look at what held them back last year, I think it was just secondary scoring. You know, Pittsburgh had their third line was, you know, probably their best line in the playoffs, and they had a hot goaltender, and, you know, they just got scoring throughout the lineup, and the Caps didn't have that. And so that's what, you know, the address. But, you know, certainly you can point to, you know, things like that within the personnel. But, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a psychological factor that has to get into that, too, at some point, that you sort of get into that, like, 
habit of not making it, not making it over the hump. But they've acknowledged that that exists within them. You know, that there's players who keep experiencing that. And, you know, it's not going to get better until they just do it, until they just get over it. Isabel, kind of building on that, how do you – we're dealing with, with that with the football team here in Arizona. I mean, the Capitals don't have anything to prove until the playoffs. So how do you avoid a letdown for the first 82 games of this season? Yeah, and I mean, you look at, like, all of last year when, you know, they're clearly the best team in the league. They're, like, putting up, like, a historic season, winning the President's Trophy. And fans are like, you know, I don't care until the playoffs. <laughs> and they're not, like, necessarily wrong because – you know, at the end of the day, like, Pittsburgh wasn't the best team in the regular season, but they were playing, like, their best hockey at the right time. And I think that's something, like, the Caps definitely weren't. You sort of started to see them struggle towards the end, or they were, like, laying their foot off the gas or just getting complacent. And I don't know, it's like this hard balance of you shouldn't be complaining that you're winning games and, you know, you're running away with, you know, the best record in the league, but you also that's not a proven formula that sometimes it's almost better when you're like an LA Kings team that like barely gets into the playoffs and is already like in that mode. But <laughs> do you like purposely lose games? Like it's kind of hard to sometimes things have to come together and you end up playing your best at the end. And I don't think they figured that out yet. Was it just a matter of running into the wrong team? Because they had a good off season last summer getting Oshie and Williams. Was it just simply ran into the wrong team at the wrong time? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think they would have been better matched up against Tampa Bay, certainly. Um, they played Tampa Bay really well in the regular season. But, yeah, I mean, I think the Caps struggled with the, like, fastest teams in the league. They really had a hard time against Dallas. They played pretty poorly against, like, San Jose. And, like, you know, after Mike Sullivan took over, they didn't really have, like, a good time with Pittsburgh in the regular season, certainly not in the playoffs. So I think Pittsburgh's system really exposed them. And then it, it was also not just Pittsburgh, but the Caps. You know, Evgeny Kuznetsov dried up in the playoffs. was not productive. Um, you know, Holtby was good, but he wasn't, you know, unstoppable like he was maybe earlier in the season. Uh, you know, just third line dried up. Justin Williams wasn't really all that productive. There were just a lot of things that kind of came together. I don't think they lost, you know, in their first in their top six. I think they lost in the bottom six. Isabel, just kind of continuing that point too. Then I guess I mean, for Washington to get where they want to go, they're probably going to have to go through Pittsburgh. And of course, the stat is they're one and eight against them all time in the playoffs. Most of these players have only been there for one or two of those series, obviously. But is there any element to that mentally just between the two franchises? And then B, I mean, do they match up better now going forward? Have they maybe found an answer for that speed? Yeah, I mean, I think if you ask the Caps, they'll say it wasn't necessarily that, like, if you, you know, do a race on the ice between Pittsburgh players and Washington players, maybe Pittsburgh's not, like, all that much faster. It was just, like, the way their system was designed that they, like, play faster, that, you know, they get pucks out really fast and that sort of thing. And I think the Caps are going to try to maybe tweak their system a little bit to do some of that, to be better prepared against those speed teams. It was definitely a weakness last year. But I think the biggest thing that they addressed was, you know, getting Lars Eller and even, like, Brett Connolly to a lesser extent to kind of try and spread out the offense more throughout the lineup that they're not so heavy in the top six 
because that's what you saw Pittsburgh do with, you know, putting like a Connor Sheary on their top line. Um, so I think that's where they're sort of trying to like match up against them better. But at the end of the day, I think the Caps believe that they're close. They don't think they really got like obliterated in that series. And they didn't. I mean, I think three of the losses were overtime losses and um, or three games went to overtime. The Caps lost two of them. And the goal differential was one goal in the end. So it, it wasn't that much of a difference. And, you know, maybe they believe that, you know, if, if, if Genu Kuznetsov, you know, isn't, you know, just running out of gas when the postseason comes around or if Brooks Orpik doesn't get suspended for three games, maybe things go differently. Although this doesn't really apply to their superstar players, a good chunk of quality players are pending free agents after this season, RFAs, UFAs. Does that make the, a heightened sense of urgency for them to win this year even more so than just the fact that they couldn't quite get it done last year? Yeah, the general manager, Brian McClellan, has said that, you know, he said before last season there was a two-year window that they knew going in that basically most of the group was going to come back this season. So they were going to go for it last year and then they were going to go for it this year. Um, and that's not to say they're not going to go for it, you know, the year after this one, but the personnel is going to be slightly different. You know, guys like Ocean Williams are probably going to move on because they're going to have to pay Evgeny Kuznetsov, Andre Burakovsky, you know, Carl Alsner is going to be a UFA. So, you know, the court, like the group is just going to change because they're going to have to pay those young stars a lot of money, and deservedly so. But I think they do, like, kind of feel the urgency. You also have to think, like, Ovi's turning 31 you know, this month, and uh, Backstrom's, you know, starting to get older, and they're running out of time, too. That defense isn't exactly, you know, a bunch of young talent. Those guys, you know, the older they get, the slower they get. There's, there is an urgency for a lot of reasons, but definitely the contract situation is one of them. Isabel, we want to get into the this season, in, in just a moment, maybe a couple of the additions and, and thoughts on, on how this roster is constructed. But before we do that, what's the latest with restricted free agent Dmitry Orlov? Uh, and what's your sense of how this plays out? Yeah, I think he's going to be back. Uh, it's, it's taken a while, and I think people were sort of surprised by that because everybody assumed that Marcus Johansson's contract would be like the difficult one and Orlov's would sort of be like the domino to fall right after that. But, you know, they don't have that much cap room left. They have like 3.45 million. You have to leave yourself some room for roster flexibility. You can't just give all of that to Orlov and be done with it. Um, and he made 2.25 last year in salary with a cap hit of two. Um, so if you're thinking like you probably have to max out at 2.6, it's not that much of a raise. And then he didn't elect for arbitration, so there's like no determined end in sight. Mm. Uh, and then there's also, you know, maybe his agents using the leverage of, you know, a possible KHL move as, you know, a leverage there. I don't think he's going to the KHL. Even, like, Sergei Fedorov with, you know, CSKA has said repeatedly he wants to play in the NHL. We would love to have him, but he's, like, he wants to stay in the NHL. I think they're going to get it done. And I expect it to be, like, one or two years just because they're not going to be able to give him that much more money than what he made last year. Um, but that's an, potentially another contract they're going to have to deal with next year, and they're also going to have to make some decisions with expansion drafts and which defensemen they protect, and he's going to be one of the guys who factors into that as well. 
How do they feel about the blue line? Because obviously there's a lot of star power on this team. It's all up front and, and maybe a little bit net too with Braden Holtby, but that's still a pretty solid uh, defense core, isn't it? Yeah, I think they think really highly of it. You know, I think what we saw with Pittsburgh is that you don't have to have the greatest third pair to win a cup. I mean, I think according to the season, Pittsburgh's blue line was pretty, looked at as pretty average. Um, so the Caps, they're going to Assuming Warlock comes back, I think he's going to move into a top four role, and which makes sense because he's one of their best puck movers. He has some of their best possession numbers, and uh, they want to maybe play him with Neskinen or John Carlson, and you still have a top four with uh, Carl Alsner, and then that moves Brooks Orpik, who's kind of getting older and was injured for half of the season last year, into a third pair with either uh, Taylor Fournier or Nate Schmidt. And, you know, he's had some struggles recently, but he's still kind of a stable, steady force back there for, you know, a, probably a higher liability defenseman in Schmidt and Forshorny. So I think they feel good about it. I think they're expecting a lot more out of Orlov um, and are really counting on him to take a lot more minutes on and have more responsibility because he is, has such high offensive upside. So maybe with the right partner, the defensive liability goes down, but... Uh, certainly, I think they think well of it. They, you know, there were times last year when everybody was healthy that it seemed like they had, you know, two top pairs that they could kind of interchange. Isabella, moving up front, uh, I think you even wrote about this. The third line in depth were off-season priorities. Do Lars Eller and Brett Connolly fit the bill? Are are they satisfied with this group going to camp now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Lars Eller will be their third line center. I'm not sure where. Brett Connolly is going to fit into that. And Tom Wilson's going to kind of, you would assume he's maybe in the top nine somewhere too after he got a new contract. Um, but I could see them putting like Justin Williams with Lars Eller on a third line. And whether it's Connolly or Stan Gallia or Tom Wilson, whoever they put as the other wing with those two, I mean, that line's going to have some offensive upside. Um, I think they sort of assume Lars Eller has more to give offensively than what he just you know, last season in Montreal, and maybe that's because he was kind of moving from center to wing and playing out of position sometimes, but, you know, they're going to surround them with good people, and they think they'll get more offense out of that, and then you sort of have a defensive fourth line, and then the second line, it might be Nick Backstrom's second line, but it's up on the top line. I mean, I think they're going to be a lot more flexible and switching it up and kind of spreading it out so that not all the offense is loaded on those top two lines. And other than those two, there weren't many changes made to this roster. Is that seen as a positive, considering the year they just came out of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of like it's this weird balance between that team won 56 games in the regular season, but then the result was still like a second-round playoff loss. Either way, they couldn't really blow it up because of the contract situation being where it was, that there were only three UFAs up, and they let all three of them go and then made a trade for Eller. And then they're out of money, essentially, by the time they pay Marcus Johansson, Tom Wilson, and uh, Orlov. So there wasn't really room for that much change either way. But, um, I mean, I don't see the need to, you know, blow up a team that was so consistently successful. You sort of have to have some faith that, you know, some things will change, you'll make some tweaks, you know, you'll make the subtle improvements. Um, but that team was good. I don't think anybody could argue that. I mean, it just didn't work out. It's hard to win in the playoffs either way. 
Isabel, you mentioned uh, Ovechkin earlier turning 31 this month. I just, anytime I think of the Capitals not getting a cup yet, I, I always think of Ovechkin because, I mean, he just put in 50 goals again last year. He's obviously got plenty of good hockey in front of him, uh, great hockey, yeah. really. How much does this weigh on him specifically? And I guess a second part to that, how big is the World Cup of hockey to him? Because it just feels like we're ready to see Alex Ovechkin win something. He's one of the greatest players I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, I remember in the locker room after the game, he was, you know, wiping away tears. Um, and I think, you know, there were times during the season where he was, like, sort of hesitant to say it. But, you know, he would say, like, finally towards the end, he would be like, this is the best team I've been on. And I think he'll be able to say the same thing next year, too. But um, it's sort of like, we don't, if they don't get it done these two years, then the whole, you know, group changes again, you know. Maybe he doesn't have as good of a right wing as Oshie next time, or it just—it feels like he's going to get further away rather than closer, almost. Um, but yeah, I think you know he's always taken a lot of pride in being Russian and um, representing his country. He takes it super seriously and does a lot of things that are kind of um, in keeping with the culture as far as like celebrating certain holidays or traditions. So that you'll kind of see him you know, wear certain t-shirts. Um, so I think he, um, I think it's going to mean a lot to him. I mean, especially with, you know, NHL Olympic participation up in the air. And, and for them, I mean, Russia, if it's ever like a competition like this, they're going to take it seriously. And I certainly, you know, think they're going to have a good chance. When I looked at the odds, I guess they were second in Canada. So. <laughs> Isabel, one last question from us. It's a little offbeat from the other questions we've been asking, but a, a lot of media members have had the opportunity, the, really the privilege to work with Barry Trotz, who always seems to provide great quotes, deep analysis, is always open and accessible. I'm wondering what the relationship is with the players. Why do players seem to respond so well to him wherever he goes? Is it some of those same qualities? Yeah, I think so, that he sort of has this like family, fatherly quality about him, maybe. Um, you know, he kind of gives them, like, respect, like, time off and gives them, like, plenty of time off. You, they rarely practice on Sundays because um, they think he thinks, like, they should be with their families. Um, and the Caps just, like, kind of an older team, so a lot of them have kids. Um, and I, he, I just think he's good about, you know, maybe if he's, like, sitting you or something, he's going to be the one to, like, go over there and have a conversation with you and tell you why. Um, and stuff like that but especially after kind of the Adam Wolf season I think he brought like a sort of structure to them that they really appreciated and like this whole like concept of accountability that he wasn't going to put any player on the team you know specifically Ovi you know like he wasn't going to treat him differently than anyone else and I think that was what they responded to immediately but they sort of grown to respect him as a person too with kind of how he operates. Isabel, great stuff. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the season. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Thanks Isabel. Great insights. All right. So there you have it. The Washington Capitals, uh, a team that legitimately could win the Stanley Cup this year. I mean, I, I, that wasn't hyperbole earlier in the show when it wouldn't surprise me if the Cup was Nashville and Washington, two of the teams we've talked about today. Uh, a couple things, I think, stood out there. The one that jumped out to me was Isabel saying that the Capitals had trouble uh, with some of the teams that have a lot of speed last year. Now, again, they lost to the Penguins essentially by one goal. And if they get past them, who knows what happens. But 
I guess to a certain extent, you know, the next thing that would have happened is they would have played Tampa. That's another fast team. So how do the Capitals rectify that going forward? Because the clubs they're going to have to get through might be playing to their weakness. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I asked. You know, they, they, they addressed, at least they, they, I think they look more at adding depth, improving their third line when they got Lars Eller and Brett Connolly. But is, does, that, does that address that issue? Does that make them a, a noticeably faster team? I don't know. That's, and that's, as we've talked about many times, that's where the league's going. Speed, speed, speed. Dallas, Tampa Bay, you look at some of the teams that are on the rise – that's a, a huge commodity for those teams. And we talked about this during the playoffs. As teams got eliminated, we kind of did a moratorium of their season and what they could do going forward. And I think we all said, there's not a lot that Washington has to do. They just didn't get the job done last year. But there wasn't a glaring, well, they, they need to fill this spot or they need to fill this spot. And that's kind of where they're at right now. And, and it's kind of an awkward spot to be in where it's tough to go in with a similar team saying, well, because in the back of your mind, you got to know, one, we didn't get it done. Two, how can we be better than we were before? It's just like a natural tendency to think, well, if we couldn't get it done before with all this talent, What's what different? happens now when really the team is mostly, yeah. aside from the death players, You have to be so hesitant not to blow it up, not to make great changes to a team that sustained incredible success over an 82-game season. Well, and I thought they showed great patience in not making changes this summer. I wouldn't have. And I think we all said this on the show, actually. They were close last year. They were very close. Yeah. And, and you you have to show a little bit of patience in professional sports. But I do think there is something to – and I made kind of a, a light reference to it when we were talking to Isabel. Arizona Cardinals here in town, they get to the NFC Championship last year, and now all anybody's thinking about is can they win? Can Carson Palmer win in the playoffs? Well, you got to wait 16 weeks to get there. Well, the Capitals got to get through 82 games to get there. You can't tell me there's not going to be a few letdowns over the course of the season because – it is the same team, and they know that's a Stanley Cup caliber team. And if you're looking for something they can change, do they try and change their style of play? Because Isabel brought this up. It's not like the Penguins are faster skaters necessarily. It's just the way they play. Yeah, and that's it's kind of tough to make those adjustments. Mm-hmm. You talked about getting the pucks out of the zone on the blue line, and as we've, I mean, we've beaten this point home. You cannot find quality blue line talent out there. It's not easy. Yeah, and that, that, that's one of the things I, we asked her that. You know, if, if the Caps are satisfied with their blue line, because. You look, at, you look at their back line, it, it's not like they have elite names back there. And if you looked at the Caps' possession numbers last year, we, I know we talked about it quite a bit, they were some there, you know, they were in the upper half of the league, but they were not elite. So does that concern you moving forward? And is that the area where you need to address it? It might be. I think that's the, I don't think you need to add more forwards. I think, especially no. now with, with Eller and Connolly, <laughs> okay. I think you, you have your pieces there. Holtby's Holtby. If he gets hurt, you're in a bad spot regardless. But that blue line is, they have a lot of nice players, good, good but not elite players and again we talked a lot about having an elite center but having an elite defenseman especially someone that can play on all special teams units it's kind of a big deal too what'd you think about the uh the perceived two-year window well i mean we're we're now entering year two of a bit shocking to me it was a bit shocking but it's not surprising you look at i actually heard that somewhere last year because i'm I'm looking right now at their team oshi justin williams kuznetsov winnick burakovsky Connolly, schmidt all RFAs or UFAs next year. That's a lot of contracts. Now, they're not going to lose all of them, and they'll probably keep all their RFAs, but how much are you going to have to pay Kuznetsov now? That's not going to be a cheap a contract. I mean, people so, forget that he led this team in points last year. He didn't lead them in goals, obviously, but he led them in points at 77. But, but now you're looking at a lot of turnover. There's going to have to be turnover there, and that doesn't mean you're going to be better. I, I thought she painted a pretty good picture of Ovechkin after that series last year against the Penguins, and I'm mm. sure it's extra frustrating for him to lose – 
to the Penguins because probably the other best team he was on lost to the Penguins back in 2009. But just that thought of this is the best team I've ever had and we still didn't get it done. Now, as she said, it's basically still this is still that team. So if they get it done this year, then that's all forgotten. But if they lose again this year in the playoffs, I would say anywhere short of getting to the cup, there are going to be changes. And yeah. as Jamie just said, there's inevitably going to be some changes anyway just because of the way the contracts are set up. Yeah, and as she mentioned, Alex Ovechkin isn't getting any younger too. So how, how I, I still think he has elite hockey ahead of him. Well, but he just scored 50 goals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how much does he have though? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe he goes until 35 at this pace. But yeah, if you lose again next year, I, I think it becomes, I mean, it's already psychological with the Caps. That's it has to be. But if you have this kind of team where you, you really felt like you were, were the elite team in the league, and you didn't get it done back-to-back seasons, man. I don't know. I don't know how you come back from that. I don't know how that wears on a team's psyche. It has to be incredibly difficult, but it's also a team to keep an eye on throughout the season. Because if this is truly the two-year window that was said, they're going to make they're going to make a lot of moves. They're going to have to. Yeah, they'll trade prospects for a defensive player if he's available at the trade deadline or whatever. And to your point on Ovechkin, I don't see him wearing down physically by age 35, 36, 37, even maybe as much as I do potentially mentally. If he still doesn't want a cup by the time he's 35, 36, or 37, maybe he's just at that point just so fried emotionally and, and trying too hard or whatever. I, I, and you worry more about five-on-five play in that than what yeah. his role is on the power play. Yeah, I mean, he still sets up on that left face-off circle and scores right. 50 goals look, a year. To, to your point, you know, you, you, buy, you get a new coach that's only a couple of years in, you buy into that system, okay, maybe this is the guy that gets me to the promised land. Well, if it, if it doesn't happen with Barry Trotz, too, then you're yeah, it, you're it's thinking, just tough. Maybe it's just not happening. Just human nature. It's tough to say. Well, yeah. that was the best team, which I think I said it as well, and we agreed that Carl Putnam agreed on our show. We did it remotely from uh, behind the mask. Behind the mask, yeah. absolutely. That this is the best Capitals team that we've seen in quite some time, if not ever. I thought they were going to the Cup. At the it's start tough of last to year. come back and say, okay, well, what can I possibly do better? Yeah, and I think, and that becomes this, a detriment. This is what you can possibly do better. Nothing until April. I mean, you just have to do exactly what you did last so, year. Agreed, but that's so tough. It's very because tough. in the back of your mind, it's like, well, that's, it doesn't matter how many games they win. They're yeah. always going to be thinking, well, I still didn't get it done last year. We did, we did great last year too, and we didn't get it done. Maybe it's a motivating factor, but it could also, especially if they have a slump. It's a long season. It's a long season. You mentioned Carl Putnam, by the way. He passed along 20, count them, 20 questions that he wanted me to ask Isabel. I, I think we got to a couple of them, but <laughs> as I noted to Carl, if he was sending me them one at a time, by the way, in, in direct message. So nice. as, when he got to eight, I said, Carl, if you reach 10, I'm going to recommend therapy. And he just kept and going. he doubled that. So doubled the yes. therapy. Who will be happier? This is the last thing on the Capitals. If the Capitals win the Stanley Cup, Carl or Ovi? Who will be more relieved? Probably well, I think, Carl. I think Ovi will be more relieved. Least, I don't yeah. know. I, With I, all the pressure that's on him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last note here, and then we're going to kind of preview what we're doing next week. Coyotes uh, hiring full-time female skating coach Don Braid. This is an interesting move by them. And, and look, I know it got a lot of run nationally because she's the first full-time female coach in the NHL, which is a really cool story. Uh She's also a really good skating coach, which, yeah. given the prospects they have, that is actually what jumped out to me first. I know we don't talk about marketing a lot on this show, but I like the way the Coyotes handled this, to be honest. It was very low-key how they announced her hiring. Yeah. It was everybody else who did the research and realized, oh, this is a, the first full-time female coach in the NHL. And, of course, you know, they're, they're understa- they understand that. They're aware of that. Don Braid was aware of that. but That's not why they hired her. No, and it was... <laughs> John Chaika, some, sometimes, you know I, know, I know he gets pigeonholed as an analyst guy, but he's, he's an analytical mind is what he is. 
And when I talked to him, it, there, was, there was almost a pause. Like, we were talking about the fact that she's a woman. She's the first woman. It's like he had to get in that mode. Yeah. Because all he was thinking about was, well, she's had results with our team. Yeah, who cares? Make, let's have her around here more. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, he even called it. I think he called it a meaningless variable when I asked him about it. Of course he did. It, well, Which I is, mean, that's exactly, <laughs> exactly. It says it all, right? <laughs> well, if you factor for X, then uh, yes, I have. That's I've fantastic. I, that's, and that's, we're not there in professional sports by any stretch. Uh, I outlined some of these things talking about. You, you, you and I, all three of us know what women face, both athletes and women reporters face in this business. Yes. It's, you know, they get critiques on their looks as much as their performance Probably in the job, which anything. is ridiculous. Which makes no meaning, sense. Yeah it's, yeah, it's insulting. But it's refreshing to hear. And yeah. I think it was kind of obvious, like you said, the way the Coyotes didn't market this as, hey, it's the first time, first full, full-time female coach. Everybody else did. It's refreshing to hear the Coyotes thought was, she's getting results with our players. She makes us better. That's a nice little bonus. And that's the important part because they always say that if it's true charity, you should do because you want to do good, not because you want to get the public, the PR press out of it. And that's when you know you're truly doing something good. And that's what they did here. They said this person is qualified for this position. We're not doing it to say, oh, hey, look at us. Look, we're, we're, we're so revolutionary. No, they did it because the person was qualified and let everybody else kind of make the story around them, which right. is what makes it special. And she's, it, it was interesting talking to her as well because she, she'll tell you, I've never really felt that sort of, you know, the, the degrading element of it that a lot of women face in this business. It, it, she said it, maybe it's because of my client base. She's been working with players for a very long time. Yeah. She's estimated she's worked with more than 100 NHL players, some of them high profile. Everybody's heard the John Tavares stories. She worked with James Neal. She's worked with a bunch of Coyotes. But then you get into, you, know, you talk to the players, and you, you ask them what it is. And hey, Connor Murphy had this unbelievably detailed analysis of what she did for his skating. You're like, Okay, you know, as Connor says, when you can see and feel the results after you work with a coach, you want to come back for more. And he's obviously seen that impact that Don Braid has had on his skating game. It's so funny to me how often just the simple element of skating kind of gets overlooked when you're talking about <laughs> prospects. It's the most important part of hockey. Like, I get that you don't have to be the fastest skater in the world to be effective, even at the NHL level, but you've you still got to be able to skate yeah. at, at the very highest, most elite level. There might be other NHLers that are faster than you, but you've got to be a great skater. And yes, if if you have a if there's a coach with this sort of track record that improves pretty much everybody skating on some level, how many prospects have looked like can't miss prospects coming out of junior because they, they got the results there because they could get by with their hands or whatever that just fade away at the NHL level? Luke Shen, the perfect example of the Coyotes. They're looking at him as the poster boy for what she can do. If she can improve his skating, which has been the knock on him all along, maybe all of a sudden he becomes that top prospect that you thought, or, or something closer to it at least. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a great hire. And, and we didn't even get in really into the reasons of why it's just a great hire philosophically either, but just for what it does for the team. Yeah, and they just keep beefing up their support staff. I mean, this is, this is part of what this ownership group is doing for this team and the new hockey operations department. They're they're leaving no stone unturned. They're making sure they take care of every possible detail. And when you get you get a world-class player like that, they're still going to let her work with Calgary, by the way. She's going to be there like seven to ten days a month because they understand she's in demand. They're, they're cool with that, yeah. which is really great to hear as well. But she, she, she thinks on a different level, and I thought this is one of her more interesting quotes. When she talked about, you know, a lot of, a lot of coaches will tell you, I don't put every, lump everybody in the same mold. That makes sense. You need to look at a player's individual abilities. But she also said she watches how the game evolves and how the demands of skating evolve with the way the game changes 
and she modifies her approach to that. I just I sat back after she gave me that quote, and I thought, huh, it's not something I would have even it's, thought about. It, it makes it's one of those things, much like this hire of of. It, it doesn't sound that complicated once it's laid out to you, but it just makes so much sense that you wonder why more teams aren't doing it. Yeah, and you, I mean, you think about coaches evolving, right? But I didn't think of it in terms of a skill coach needing to evolve with the way the game is changing. And maybe that's my fault, but clearly she's, she's well-respected around the league because you talk to anybody that's worked with her, and they rave about her. Well, look at the two teams that are going to have access to her. I mean, you mentioned Calgary, too. These are two of the teams with, with – a lot of younger players on the way up or in Calgary's case, maybe already in the league, but still very young that can improve. If you draft prospects and you can't develop them, what's the point of having the prospects? And again, two forward thinking general managers as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that goes a lot into it. How, how you, you, they set the tone for what their organization does. And both, both franchises who are on the rise are setting that tone that we're going to make sure that this is a place where young players succeed because that's how those two teams realistically given salary concerns, given location, that's how they're going to succeed in a league that has the New Yorks, the Chicago's of, of the world. And we've said how many times over the last year that not only are, are Calgary and Arizona on the rise, they're on the rise trying to build their team around speed. So that's how you, that's how you win now. Speed, speed, speed. Uh, Craig, who are we talking to next week? Craig doesn't have it open. This I is, do this have is it tradition. open. I have it open okay. this week. Then you've ruined tradition. Well, but, but do you want to uh, mention, by the way, a different format this week? coming week this next week well yeah it's it basically we're going to release two podcasts next week yes correct and, and here's why we're going first of all we're going to talk with las vegas review beat writer steve carp about a team that hasn't even taken the ice yet and won't for another year i'm excited about but this. there's so much going on around that team that's that's going to be an offbeat a, a, an interesting look at the building of a franchise and all that entails so we'll have him on we're also going to talk about the new york rangers but i know a lot of our listeners pay attention to the local team so we're going to talk coyotes next week as well and we're lucky enough that we're going to have Arizona Republic beat writer Sarah McClellan on with us, maybe in studio if I can talk Sarah into coming down here. We'll see how that goes. So we're going to separate separate out those two podcasts. Is that correct? Yeah, we're going to do 49. This is just going to be the normal podcast. 49 and, 49 and a half will be the, the, oh, the, the episode 50. It's a, it's a okay, monumental it number. 50. Yes. It's, what what, what anniversary is that? Episode, the golden episode? I don't know. We can't call it the Antoine Vermette episode, though. We're calling it whatever we want to call it. It's episode 50. So I like, I like the golden episode. Episode golden 50 episode. will just be all coyotes, basically. I mean, it's going to be a yeah, coyotes be all, Yeah, all, all coyotes podcast, like extended preview. We know we're going to talk for a long time on that, yeah. so we're just separating it right now. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, Jamie, how can people listen to the show that they Search, just listened to? Yes, well, yeah. If you want to listen, subscribe to us on iTunes. Look for Natural Hat Trick. You also can find us on Google Play, also Natural Hat Trick there. Today, Slapshot.com, we post it there, but it's probably a little bit more convenient for you just to get it downloaded directly to your phone. Uh, subscribe, rate us, give us comments. Compliments, please. We're very fragile. And um, our Twitter handle? The Natty Hattie, and that's, that is a uh, – At the Natty Hattie, yes. Yeah, the, the, that's the Luke Lipinski name. Uh, I think we went over that how Natural Hat Trick is being used by, I don't know, somebody that hasn't it's, used it. It's like not being years. used. It's just taken, so we can't have it. Natty we should Hattie's find better. that guy. Yeah, that's true. It's, Just follow it's, us at the Natty Hattie. We'll tweet our podcast out there from today's slap shot. Uh, hope you could, you probably could hear Craig this week. So that means I've done my job. <laughs> An exciting turn of events. All right, for Craig Morgan and Jamie Eisner, I'm Luke Lipinski. Thanks for listening to the Natural Hat Trick Podcast.